series of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are now standing inside the O'Rahilly building. The Honan Hostel was established in 1916 as a hostel for male Catholic students and remained active as a hall of residence for students until its closure in 1991, when the demand for this type of accommodation had diminished. The building was bought by UCC and was demolished and developed as the O'Rahilly Building. The O'Rahilly Building is the main home of languages and humanities in UCC. The building is named after Alfred O'Rahilly, the first registrar of UCC from 1920 to 1943, who later served as president. The building is a major addition to the quantum of academic space in the college and is arguably the most significant addition to the college building stock in recent decades. It substantially completes the southeast corner of the main campus. The O'Rahilly building located on the site of the Owen Honel Hostel and has been carefully designed to complement the architecture of the white limestone quadrangle. Today, the O'Rahilly building houses, among others, the Department of English on Onnenagwegalohar and hosts the UCC Irish speaking coffee shop and events room on Shomer Kovarov. There is also a seminar room in the building named after Professor Mary Ryan, who was the first female professor of any university in Ireland or England who was appointed the first professor of modern languages in UCC in 1910. We spoke to Conal Creedon at the O'Reilly building. Conal, it's lovely to meet you here in a, a very unusual room on the first floor of the O'Reilly building here in UCC. And it's, it's a strangely um, uh, designed room, I think. It's, it's sort of uh, like a Lego block or something um, with two windows on either side here and then this completely different, bigger window behind us. But you love this room, don't you? Well, yeah, genuinely. Uh, like, I suppose when I started the writing residence, uh, here, um, I really had no real experience of UCC or university or any of those things, and I sort of, you know, I was delighted to get it, and then there was a sense of, oh God, I must do it now, right? And there was a bit of a stress bubble that came at me, right? And I remember I didn't really know what to do or what was expected, and it was a bit like school, and school really wasn't a great experience for me, right? That, like the first day coming to the gate, there was real, you know, there was no fight, it was pure flight, it was like, get out of here, this is going to do it. But uh, once I arrived, um, I just went around to various people, and, and this is the English department corridor here, right? Various people in the hall and said, look, before you start this year, could I talk to all your students, right? So, you know, they'd go into, so the first day of every meeting, right? Some of them would be first years, they'd just introduce me to say something. And what I said was, look, I'm going up here every Wednesday afternoon if you want to come up, because I just thought maybe we'd start engaging, right? And a bunch arrived up and they stuck with it to the end and it was brilliant and um, in fact what was brilliant about this room was like because I'm not a teacher by nature or even by ability or anything right so like the first day they were all sitting on this side of this it's sort of a it's sort of a triangular shaped room really right yeah. and 
so when I came in, it seemed like I should be there, right? And I was saying, this is ridiculous because... So then we all moved to that side of the table, looking out the window, and what we had, it was actually brilliant. And I'm still in touch with all of them. This was 2016, um, like, like on a weekly basis. And um, uh, what we used to do, because even though it wasn't a class and it wasn't what, what we were doing, is we used to take um, a group selfie every week, right? And it was almost like a roll call, but without a roll call, right? And uh, one of the the girls in the course, Audrey, she's big into photography. So then her thing, she became the photographer of the group, right? And we used to go off on different things, strolls around the town and stuff. And um, and she used to photograph it, and it was just brilliant. It was, I tell you the truth, and not because I'm here in UCC now, and not because I'd ever be applying for this job again, because it's only a once-off thing. Best year of my life. Loved it, every minute of it. And it was all based here, really, for the first term. The second term was, you had to do sort of classwork, which was sort of, loved that too, except I, the part I didn't engage with, I didn't like, actually was um, where you had to sort of um, grade people's work. So I stayed away from that. I just explained to the person in charge that that's not my thing, really. Otherwise, I'd be, you know, I'd be reviewing for newspapers. I, and that's not, I'm, I, I can... And I'm actually very impressed by everything, you know? So they, uh, it, it worked its way out without me having to grade people, really, you know? A room in UCC that you became more comfortable in this environment? Well, I, you know, almost immediately, that's the truth of it. I mean, I remember Anne, the, the, uh, the first person I met. Oh, yes, uh, lovely. And, Anne Stewart. Yeah, so I used to call her the keeper of the keys, the keeper of the keys, because like, I worked at Cork Prison, and I, I sort of, in my, it was the writing residence, I had a lantern, and I said, okay, I get it. It's not like Cork Prison, really. You go to somebody who has the keys to figure things out, and we got on really well. So that was the first person I met, still really fond of Anne, and we, and we engaged, you know, and again, you know, and, um, and then... Um, Alex Davis gave me his office for the whole time, which was really, he had my own office and everything, and like there isn't sp space here, as you know, that it's a fairly busy department, and it just so happened that he was doing research or something, so he said, look, that's yours for the whole time, and that was very sweet, and... Um, and Conal, how do you feel that um, being in UCC for that time fed into your own writing practice? Not so much practice, but what it did feed into is that every week, uh, well, first of all, I suppose I would have come here having not gone to UCC and things with the prejudice that a lot of people would have who haven't gone to UCC. That, you know, the things you read in the newspaper, you know, our students are, whatever, gone mad and indulgent and, and that the whole thing is pretentious and all this. And then when I arrived here, I realised that all my prejudices were absolutely wrong and that it was led by the students and these they just turned up. You know, they, like I was, I remember the first week thinking, okay, this is great fun because last week I gave a good speech to the classes, but after an hour of this, they're going to say to hell with that. And it wasn't an hour, we used to hang out for the day, actually, right? And they have other things to do as well, right? Like, you know, they have their own coursework and they're young, they're, you know, they, they, they want to socialise, they have a lot of stuff in their lives going on that as, as you get to my age, those things fall off by the, by the wayside. And... I just thought the second week I'd be on my own there, and it wasn't. It just locked solid really suddenly, and they didn't know each other. And we became. Oh, will I tell you a mad story? Will I tell you a mad Go story? On. <laughs> One of them, uh, he, he, his name was Grady, right? And he basically 
has been to Ireland maybe about seven times but never flew. You only travel by boat, right? And uh, brilliant guy, right? And we we published a book, uh, a collection of our work. And in fairness, um, UCC Library and City Library came together to, to fund it, you know. And um, because, you know, it, you know, it was just a project that we were doing and we just thought it would be nice just to keep it for ourselves, you know, our, our time, right? And at the time, Grady was off back home in America and... Um, so I contacted him and said, you know, we're launching this book. And he said, when is it? He said, I said, April, right? So he said, mm, okay, I hope I get there, right? And he left. It took him ages to get here. So he, he came by ship. Uh, he got a, like, you know, you can travel on container ships and things, right? So he got a container ship to, like, and so we were all following him, um, like, on the ocean, right? And he went to, like, to the Azores first and then to Lisbon. And then he got a train from Lisbon up to... Oh, someplace like Denmark or something. Then he got a boat from Denmark to Scotland, and the night it was being launched, uh, it was the same night that the new president had been invited to come over here for some reason. Yeah, I suppose it was just part of his just, you know, being welcomed to the to university and stuff. And um, he uh, just as we were about to start, who arrived in the door in Grady? And like, so it took him I don't know weeks, and like that's fair devotion, like you know, to to the group. And uh, I think that's what it was about, really. It was, it was actually just a bunch of people hanging out and writing. And for me, that totally inspired me. That I was looking at these people. They were, they'd read more than me. They were brighter than me. They were sort of more engaged. They were certainly better from a whole technological point of view. And um, I was saying, you know, follow their leads. They don't be following me at all. I'd go with you guys, right? And they were writing like mad, so I started writing like mad. And... Two of them now since one of them is writing for a newspaper, one is has just won the Owen Murray Award that's going to be launched on Friday or Thursday, and then another one uh, won the Pat Patricia Collin Award two years ago. So these are brilliant, you know. And at the start, I used to call them sort of students and stuff, right? But now I I I think I think students is a very broad band for what actually defines. Sort of very, it doesn't really define properly what these they, they were very creative people, you know, and that's what it was, it was a great bunch. And when you went on your walks around the college and the streets surrounding the college, what kind of conversations used you have? Well, I suppose one of the big ones we went on was we all met at the National Monument, and uh, it was brilliant, really great crack. But I suppose th- th- there'd always be certain things that I wouldn't. Like, so, for example, uh, even if it was an art experience, like, for example, I wouldn't go into a bar because I think that'd be wrong in a way. It'd be, it, because it, with social media, so it would look, but it, it would just look pathetic, really, right? To, uh, so there might be an exhibition. So that they, and see, some of them, they weren't all actually from Cork, like, you know, some were from uh, Kenny, and, uh, and it was great because we were there. I remember being at the monument and one by one they turned up and I thought, oh, where are those, right? So we went off, we, we did this sort of, just walked around the town. We, we went to the Triscoll, we went to check out a few different places there, right? Um, obviously the English market, um, and certain things they may not be aware of that would maybe inspire their writing or even just inform their writing about the city, you know? Things like the, the, the fact that we're walking, like we all know as Cork people, that, that these streets were rivers and a part of a delta, but they may not have known that. And then go to the South Man and show the doorways that would have been the boat arches and then to the Chateau on Patrick Street and, sh- you know, the same thing. And, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I suppose, the folklore, the stuff like, you know, Seamus Murphy's, it must be the smallest 
public sculpture in the world, the Dog Trough, you know, where um, Madri and like sort of saying like there is that place there, and it's directly across from Father Matthew, who was sort of saying don't drink, and then Seamus Murphy is sort of saying you know what you do is give a thirsty dog a drink, you know that kind of stuff, and um, the, uh, you know and stopping off for coffees and. Um, and once again, Audrey was taking photographs, and it was brilliant. Like we great, like you know. So, um, uh, like inside the English market, you know, uh, Pat Pat O'Connor left us in behind the counter and stuff, and uh, up and you know. So, uh, some really cool photographs. One brilliant one actually. It's taken in full size mirror. They were all looking in the mirror, and uh, this was taken in the Edinburgh Palace, and. Another one then there was a, there happened to be a carnival in town, right? So we all got up on top of the um, the the, um, the merry-go-round, and um, so it's just a day out, you know. And because um, at the end of the day, when we were here, we were just talking anyway, you know. We're not you're not doing anything, just talking. So you may as well be talking about other stuff, you know, that's around the place. So I think what you're saying, Conal, is, and I would totally agree with you, is writing is about life and life is about writing and if you're in Cork writing and life and UCC are all bound together and I think it, it must have been a wonderful experience for students particularly from other countries to have um, a guide like yourself who's fir very firmly based in as a Cork writer I think um, because your setting is generally um, wonderfully drawn from your own environment here. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I suppose I never really saw Cork, you know, really. I never really saw it as a place until I went away. And when I came back, I suppose I was in my mid-twenties when I came back, back and, like, that sense of being a tourist and the, the wonder of a town that you didn't know, right? And it's like everything was just fantastic then, you know? And, like, I said, like, whoa, that's... Because I sort of left when I was maybe 17, so, you know, you're not tied into tuned into those kind of subtleties and maybe when I came back there may have been a bit of homesickness behind it I don't know I just wanted to come home in the story right like mid-twenties and um, I don't know if it did or didn't but it's certainly I can't even say it's inspired but I just found this stuff incredible and I'm sure if I arrived someplace like London at that time in my life I would have found the same thing just I was at the right time to sort of observe and ask why is that like that why does this street shape this way and why is that one straight and different things because you know I suppose up to that point I think being a teenager really and got this brilliant it's like being drunk like you know because you end up going home, where's my shoe you know I said I don't know when you were talking with two on you right or you know like you know like where's my coat you know where's like, my jump off yeah you know like and then you, at around the age of 25 you start remembering okay if I go out with two shoes on I'm going to come home with two shoes on because this is getting ridiculous you know so you start sobering up around the mid 20s and it's, a, it's when your eyes start opening to things around you, you know, and I, and for me anyway, so I just happened to be here. And it sort of, yeah, I think it sort of fired up my head a bit. Okay. It sort of sounds like um, uh, the students were slightly more mature than you, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> but you had such a nice time uh, as well, you know. Really brilliant. And I, do you know, I wasn't too sure. At the start, I was delighted to get it. I was saying, God, yeah, but then I thought... This really isn't my world at all, and I know Cork very well. But UCC beyond the gates, I had no experience of it, you know. Because there's a lot of people I know haven't gone to university. No, like most people I know actually haven't been. And there's a sense that up there, there's a world that you've no business being part of unless you're part of it, you know. 
this is the last page of Passion Play, and uh, Passion Play is a story about a guy, it's a novel about a guy who um, decides to take his own life at the very beginning, takes two hits of acid, and his mind carries him to heaven, basically, right? He's dead. And I suppose the place that killed him, the place that made him decide to die, is the place where he ends up. And so I suppose heaven and hell are the same thing, it's all about perspective. This is the last page, his vision of heaven. His name is Pluto. <clears throat> I take her by the hand, and on and on we make our way to the brow of Patrick's Hill. There we stop and look back down into the goldfish bowl we don't turn to salt. She tugs my hand and leads the way. We climb the wall at Bell's Field. There before us is a world framed by the salt and pepper cellars of the belfries of St Anne's and the North Cathedral. My eyes embrace the beautiful north side, laid out before us like a kitchen table at Christmas time, cram-packed with dainties and delights, stretching as far as the eye can see and vanishing over the hill at Blarney Street and Napneeny. Breathe it in, I say. We walk through the knee-high meadow and nestle down into a sheltered hollow. We're sprawled there, barefoot on the grassy ridge above the city, saying nothing. Bolts of pleasure and pain as my memories travel across Brewery Valley, stopping off along the way at the North Monastery, Easons Hill, Murphy Stack and landlocked Powell Harbour, past each laneway step and steeple from the Bishop's Palace, right over to the Dome of City Hall, then right back across the Redemption Road and all over the city to the spiked towers of Holy Trinity, St Finbars and the green tops of St Francis. In the distance, the county hall scrapes clouds, picking up the gold of a dying sun. I gaze out westward, out along the beautiful Lee Valley to the Carragrahan Strait. There, there like a last grasp at life, a setting sun sends flames of reds and orange and yellow licking high up into the sky. Looks like Balancholic's burning, I say. My city is a royal town, dressed up in crimsons and gold. In the distance, through the mists of time, a cold smoke, I hear the cry of an echo boy, the sound of men walking and whisting their way to work to the red city of Grana Braher, the chimes of the ice cream van across on Spangle Hill, the bells of some cathedral roller, the yelps of children from roaches buildings playing ball along the road. And as I say goodbye to the city of pain, it occurs to me that there's a harmony of movement and colour and sound. Everything is as one. The aromatic blending of Murphy's Brewery, Linehan's Sweet Factory, Donnelly's Bakery. She snuggles into me. This could be heaven, I whisper. Could be, she smiles. Could be. This is from um, Passion Play as well. Um, and it's a bit like what I was saying about seeing your city as a, or your place returning and seeing it as a tourist. Well, here Pluto, um, he, it's the first time he really sees the, the magic of the English market, even though he's been out there all his life. So here it is. It's called The Market. <clears throat> it's dedicated to Kay and Rebecca as well, because I just think they're very important people in, in this town and in the market. So I'll run with it. It's called The Market. Jesus, I'm late. I'm late, but I hesitate. At Princess Street Corner, a lone troubadour treats the land I love the best with care. I cut through the mutton lane into the market, a shortcut, scenic route to the Grand Parade. The market is glowing, 
a bit like the Wizard of Oz when it turns to colour. Vegetables freshly dug from green and leafy country gardens tumbling from stalls. Chickens, rabbits, wood pigeons, pheasants and ducks strung up in clusters. Trays of eggs from every cast of farmyard and waterfowl stacked to the canopy. Art students straddling the fountain, sketching, moving still life. The knobbly knees of cafe society poked through the railings of the ceiling slung farm gate. The air is thick with sound and scent. The most beautiful aroma of exotic herbs and spices from Mr. Bell's Spice Emporium. Hot breads from the Yukon Bakery. Pesto, chorito, bitter balsamic vinegar, sweet olive oil, freshly sizzling crepes. Fish and all creatures from the Atlantic Ocean. And meat. More meat than you could shake a stick at. And all this is blending beautifully with the sing-song sound of people talking. Jesus, I'm late. I'm late, but I hesitate. Ah well, may it be hung for a sheep as for a lamb. I'm going to introduce uh, our guest author, Neve Boyce. And I'd like you to give a massive welcome to Neve for coming down to here today. This is just to, to warm me up in a way. It's uh, the opening scene from, from Her Kind. And it's, uh, it starts outside Kilkenny Castle. Um, where the, the witchcraft trials were held in 1324. I just think it's really interesting that we often know a lot about witchcraft trials nowadays, especially from Salem and, and probably because of Netflix and movies and all the other novels that have been written about European witchcraft trials. Um, but the very first witchcraft trial actually happened here in Ireland and it's not really included very much in history books because it doesn't suit the timeline often, I think, rather than it's actually you know, neglected for any other reason. But when someone wants to write the history of the witchcraft trials, they often um, focus on the 200 years later when, when it was really blazing, um, rather than this one small case, which um, predates all, all of those trials, but has exactly the same kind of accusations and exactly the same kind of, um, um, I suppose, kick-off point, you know? Uh, an independent woman put, does things that, uh, um, goes against the, the grain of society. So um, this is uh, from the opening of the book. All Hollows, 1324. By first bell, a crowd had gathered beneath the trees. They wore cloaks lined with rabbit or vair according to their rank. Despite the snow, they waited, watching the castle gates. They argued constantly of the witches locked inside the castle jail, which would be the first to confess which, if any, was innocent. These are serious proceedings, not a play, Farby told them. Go home until the cry is raised. They went hungry, but they would not go home. As prime was rung, figures appeared at the top of the hill. The prisoners had left the confines of the jail, but no one could say afterwards how or by which door. Had everyone looked away to the sky or to their feet at the same time? The women moved slowly. Heretics' crosses had been stitched to their chests. Weighed down by their trailing gowns, the ladies were last. The maids, less burdened, led. One was unveiled, her hair straggled past her waist, and as they neared, people blessed themselves. It was a strange sight, the bent figures dark against the snow, the yellow crosses on their gowns, the bright cold sky above. 
The crowd muttered their names as if counting children who had been lost. Helene, Esme, Lady Christine, her sister Beatrice, but where was the one they had waited for? Where was the maid of Dame Alice Kittler? So the, uh, the next small piece I'm going to read is um, from the morning after Ladred has accused the women in Kansas Cathedral of, uh, of being witches, um, of, telling pe of being heretical sorceresses and threatening them with excommunication, which was a huge, hugely serious um, threat. Basili is a teenage girl. I had risen early. Morris was to meet me this morning. It wasn't time. It wasn't even light, but I couldn't sleep. At Watergate, the gate was locked. I strolled along the banks of the Braggock for a while. My skirts darkened with dew as they dragged through the grass because I kept going for I liked the swishing sound. I worried that he might not come. What the bishop had said wasn't true, but Morris might know that. And then I thought, what if what the bishop said was true? What if Alice chanted charms, cast spells, invoked protection? How was she any different to him reciting his ancient curse surrounded by candles shrouded in incense? What made one prayer holy and another not? I thought of my mistress, of her pale hair, her heavy jewels, her ink-tipped fingers. The sorceress, he had said. I thought about her black chest full of medicines, talismans and relics of her good fortune, her hoard of coins, her case of tally sticks, her high ornamental bed stacked with feathered mattresses, and I thought, Yes, there was something magical about my mistress, and I was glad. Glad there were rubies, silver, velvet and ermine in this mud-shriven world, however they arrived. I stopped and looked into the river, and my watery twin looked back from the mud and the reeds. The bishop said an underworld lover courted Alice. Where did he come from? Did he arise from the Nore, spear in hand, soaked from the green depths? Whether there was or wasn't a demon, he showed himself to me then. The river sparkled as he broke through its skin, his head slick as a seal's, his body glistening and his mouth crammed with pearls. Then, in a blink of an eye, he was gone. I rushed homewards, not wanting to forget what I'd seen. It was getting bright. There were many more people about than earlier. Some were gathered in the market square, clustering together by the whipping post. Everyone turned and watched as I passed. A child stood alone apart from the others who were skipping. Her face was blank and her dress had been slashed by the whip. I wondered what her crime had been. Suddenly my hair was yanked back and my veil was torn from my head. I thought my neck would snap. I glimpsed the fierce face of the woman who had grabbed me and felt her breath against my ear. Little witch. There must have been two, maybe three women. But all I could see was the blue sky as my hair was dangled from all ends. My hair was pulled from all angles and I was dangled between them like a hated doll. Enough, a vo man's voice called. Released, I fell to my knees. My veil was on the ground, muddied and flattened. Tangled clumps of my hair were about me. I felt the shadow of a crowd gather, but didn't turn to look. I picked up every shred of hair, stuffed the tufts into my purse. I walked slowly towards the house, refusing to run, refusing to show fear. Thank you so much, Neve, for a wonderful reading, and we're delighted to have you here in Cork. Um, 
That was fantastic. I'm going to be very cautious about my questions because I've actually realized that um, I might actually say something that's a spoiler. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's very interesting the way it weaves its way through and you realize why people are doing the things they do. So I'm going to pass you over to Danielle. For some non-spoiler questions. <laughs> um, the historical detail in the novel is absolutely wonderful. You have just the right balance of detail and the whole period feels so alive in reading the book and you make it sound so alive and fascinating talking about it there as well, listening to you. And I'm wondering, um, the book was nominated for the EU Literature Prize and um, that wonderful quote from the judges, a searing, a critique of our own times as a sort of Miller's crucible. And what is it about historical fiction, do you think, that allows it to function so well as a critique for our own times? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's a lot... Of, I, you know, the thing about historical fiction is so many people... Um, you know, there's, there's a joke about vegans, you know, how do you know a vegan? They'll tell you in three seconds, how do you know? You hear it all, especially with literary, like most of the literary writers in this country are historical novelists, but they have some kind of resistance to that. Um, I don't know what they think we're going to put a corset on them or something, but the, the, I think the, the thing is, is every, every book that's written out of this time is, is, is encapsulates the voice of its own concerns, you know, so it's like a mirror, historical novels are like mirrors sometimes. So if I'd written this, if this book was written um, 30 years ago by someone other than me, I guess maybe they might have just really looked at Le Dread as the main character. Um, so it, his, in his version, Petronel de Medea gets one sentence and that might have been a similar thing. So it, it's, I think historical fiction is, is uh, relevant because it voices our own concerns. This is my story, The Captain and the Rat. One morning my mother was looking out over Tom Flynn's shoulder into the sunlit yard and wishing she was a daisy when she spotted a rat wrestling with a potato from the dog's bowl. The rat was dragging the potato towards the hole in the boundary wall beside the stack of timber and back into the neighbours. We were watching the rat with his pearl black eye tugging the potato toward the hole when the captain reluctantly left his breakfast grumbling. Me good rat. I'll sort him out, he said. At least he's not one of ours, my mother said, trying to calm him. <laughs> I knew it annoyed the captain having to leave his breakfast, because I knew he always enjoyed the last bit of breakfast. He always put the last bit of bacon, the last bit of egg, and the last bit of boxy on the fork, and used it to wipe clean the chef's sauce and black crispy bits off the plate, and wash it down with a fresh drop of tea. He always ate the bacon rind too, and he'd even take mine if I didn't want it and he'd eat it and say it was the nicest bit. But he didn't go up the back after the rat like I thought he would. No, he went upstairs and was back in a minute with the gun, which was kept on the top of the coat hooks on the landing. When he saw the gun, Tom Flynn finished his tea with a gulp and placed his mug on the table and said, now that's the boy that'll sort him out. <laughs> the captain reached for the box of cartridges stashed on top of the press over the sink. He thought they were safe there, but he didn't know I could step up on the low sill and get onto the sink and get at them if I wanted to. 
I thought about his breakfast going cold, because I hated cold boxing, and I knew the captain did too. He w we watched as the rat dragged the potato to within feet of the hole. He kept stopping and running back to the hole and coming out again and dragging it another bit and darting back to the hole again. Tom Flynn said he couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to eat his fill in the middle of the yard there and then or drag the lot away now and eat it later. The captain pressed the two orange cartridges into the barrels with his thumb and closed the gun quietly. He told me to knock off Morris O'Doherty. He told my mother to hold back the net curtain. He got down on one knee and told me to get the milk jug off the table. I didn't know where he was going with this, and I looked at my mother and she shrugged me to go ahead. I knew by the way she did it though, that she didn't know what it was for either. But that's the way it always was with the captain. You never knew what he was going to do until he did it. Anyway, I was standing with the jug of milk in my hand and my mother raised the net curtain and we could see Mr. Rat making his way to the potato again. Dragging his tail, he scurried and humped, scurried and humped, scurried and humped. He tugged at it and nibbled at it and rose up on his back legs with his black pearl eye watching everything. And then, when he darted back into his hole again, the captain told my mother to lift the window. She tried, but it was stuck with paint and had to use her two hands. And then the rat appeared and the window lifted with a pop and the rat scurried back to his hole again. The captain cursed. Now he was annoyed because the rat mightn't appear more, but when the window was up far enough, he got me to position the milk jug to hold it there. That was what the jug was for. Now, the captain stuck the two barrels out through the narrow opening and raised the gun to his shoulder slowly. I pulled the chair out into the middle of the floor to look out over him, and he said, shh. And my mother tried to talk, and he said, shh, again. I knew my mother was annoyed with him, being annoyed. And I knew then that we had a situation. <laughs> him down on one knee with the gun at his shoulder, looking at the potato beside the timber stack. Me standing on the chair, looking at the potato beside the timber stack, and not able to move without him shushing. And my mother holding up the net curtain and giving me eyes and looking at the ceiling. And Tom Flynn sitting with his legs crossed, watching us, not saying a word. I felt a bit embarrassed with Tom Flynn there watching us, but he didn't seem to pass a bit heat. I knew the captain would get the rat, because he shot two crows off Healy's BBC aerial with the one shot before. And that wasn't easy, because Healy's was the other side of Low Street. He stood in our gateway so no one would see him like a real sniper, and fired, and the two crows tumbled down the roof and fell three stories, landing on the footpath outside Healy's shop door with the soft plop. He sent me over to get the two crows and put them in the dustbin. The rat took its time coming back out. The captain adjusted himself on the floor again and sat back on his heel. All we had to do now was wait. I was getting tired standing on the chair and I was sorry I ever did pull it out. I began to think this thing with the rat could go on forever. I thought about the fellas that went shooting rats in the dump or in behind Kilrain's slaughterhouse in the gut barrels. The rats loved it there and there was no shortage of them. I thought about the boxty and the rasher that were still on the table and if only we could get at them. And I thought about school. I had to go to school, but now that didn't seem to be important, and I was saying nothing. Then I moved the chair, and the captain said, shh, again. I knew the captain, and I knew he could wait for up to three days easily. Me standing on the chair, not able to move without him shushing. Him on the floor, not wanting to move, looking at the potato beside the timber sack. And my mother holding up the curtain, and looking at the ceiling. 
Then a shot reverberated around the kitchen and through the house. It was the loudest thing I'd ever heard, and I wasn't expecting it, because the rat wasn't near the potato. <laughs> then mother said, you've got the effort, because she didn't like them round the place at all, even if it wasn't one of ours. Tom Flynn said, that's the last he'll eat. And my mother said, we'll make a fresh pot of tea, and she went and put on the kettle. The captain opened the gun and took out the empty cartridge, and I could see the blue smoke rising from the barrel, and the smell stung in my nostrils. He had only fired once and gave me the gun and the empty shell, and he held on to the full one and put it in the box on the press over the sink that I could get at if I wanted to. I smelt the empty shell and watched the blue smoke come out of it. Through the window, I could see my mother already crossing the yard to the dustbin with me bowed rats stiff and arched on the end of the tongs. My mother came in and she was still talking about it. She was proud of the captain. That was one rat that didn't know what hit him. Well, it was the quickest thing. He just stuck his nose out and bang, she said, clapping her hands. I thought then the captain might have been telling the truth about him and Audie Murphy being snipers at the LDF. But that was the captain. He was always one step ahead of me. I was watching the potato while he was watching the hole. <laughs>
The blackness was absolute, and in it she felt the thing that had roused her. Small fingers skittering across her face. Kiki was beside her bed. Sarah was still under his touch, allowing his fingers to stipple across her cheeks, asking questions of her. She realised that the heat had gone. Eddies of cool air were moving through the room. She reached out, sliding her hand down the length of his arm to find him. She could feel Kiki trembling as he latched onto her hand, and without thinking, Sarah threw back the sheet and slowly pulled him to her, her skin warm, his body tiny, as she wrapped herself around him so naturally it felt like home. In the darkness, they lay curled up together, his breathing light and fast but slowing now, and she wondered why he was afraid, because there was no shouting in the house. Then she felt it, a low rumble. Kiki had felt it coming up from the ground. Sarah held him carefully and counted the spaces between the rumbles, the numbers decreasing fast until the hard crack was just above the roof and the corners of the shutters were shafts of light, blue bright and furious. Kiki burrowed backwards into her as if he could meld his spine to her belly and Sarah wondered that he had found her, that he had known that she even was a thing in the world. She curled her body more tightly around his, using her arms to ward off the fears he could not voice. They were silent together. Outside, the storm finally screamed and roared across the sky, and as the rains came, Sarah began to speak. Holding the beautiful boy, she whispered reassurances over and over into an ear that could not hear. I'm Laura McKenna, and I'm going to read the opening of my novel, Words to Shape My Name which is about the lives of Lord Edward Fitzgerald and his black manservant, Tony Small, and it opens with his daughter, Harriet. May is a month, what I hold in particular fondness after the gloom and damp of winter has passed. London offers little cheer during those earlier dark months, and I look forward to my journey through the countryside and my visit to Baba's grave. So last week, I took a handsome cab outside Euston Station, as were my habit. The driver accepted my price, once I told him I'd made the journey every year for the past 20 and knew better than he how far and how much and it would serve him ill to talk of half-mile fares and time spent standing for I could just as easy give my custom to the next man whose horse looked a deal livelier than his and would likely do it for less than a pound. He raised both his hands in a gesture of defeat. We passed through Wimbledon and on to St Mary's. I instructed the driver to take himself and his cab some distance hence, for I had no wish that he should sit up there all high and mighty, looking down on my comings and goings, heaping a cold sore, darkly whiskered and darkly dressed, in the manner of drivers who think they're gentlemen when they are no such thing. I made for the far boundary wall to my parents' grave, marked not by any stonemason's handiwork, but a metal cross fashioned by myself from some ironmongery what came my way. Nothing fancy, only two spiral bars what I'd wrapped tight with string and on which I'd once chalked their names. But the rain is no observer of such formalities. I knelt to straighten the cross and saw a peep of yellow nodding above the grass. Cowslips. I'm most partial to them for their lowly beauty, their hidden scent. The sun were beginning to warm the ground and I sat there waiting for a sign. A jackdaw perched on a broken headstone stretched out one wing like a widow's fan and reached under it to tidy and trim himself, never called nor made a sound. A shadow crossed my heart. The jackdaw's feathers flared suddenly and my eye were snagged by it, a breeze, I thought, struggling to my feet, while the bird struggled to take to the air all a flap and a fluster. 
The sky were overrun by a rabble of clouds, blustering along in puffs and squalls. I heard the hedgerows seesaw, branch on branch, thorn on thorn, and the weather vane screeched round sharp to the west. And there it were, the scatter of Mayflower blossom. Now you may think it strange for a woman of my years, being almost 60, to stand atop a grave with her arms thrown wide and her eyes closed and her head flung back while the Mayflower shakes out her petals. But so it were I received again the blessing of them white blossoms, their touch gentle, their smell familiar and dusty. The jack-chap calls of the birds scattered my wanderings, and I opened my eyes to see them circling above me, three of them, smuts blown about by the breeze. And then that cough, that sound, ahem. Excuse my impertinence, but I wonder if I have the pleasure of addressing the daughter of a Mr. Anthony Small. I turned, sharp mind, to see a scrawny man swamped under the weight of a thick coat, woolen muffler and felt hat, though Lord knows the weather hardly called for such. I took a step back, near stumbled over Baba's resting place. The man reached for my arm, steadied me. I must apologise, Miss Fall. It is Miss Fall, is it not? His cheeks were mottled red. What's it to you, I may have said. Oh, it is you. I'm certain of it. I could scarcely believe it. He clapped his hands together. Oh, this is too, too good. What a happy occurrence. There was something just too pleased about him. Perhaps he had a lick of madness. I turned from him. Wait, he called. I have been sent by Lady Lucy Foley. You may have known her as Lady Lucy Fitzgerald. She died six years ago, left instructions. He spoke like he'd a plug of snuff up his nose. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Mr. John Butler, solicitor of Tooley Street, Borough. How did you know me? How did you find? Oh, but I've been searching. You seem to shed your name each time you move. But just now, you knew me. Pardon me, but I guessed you to be the daughter of my Mr. Anthony Small. He being a black man, and you well also black. And today being the anniversary of his death. Well, I hoped against hope that you might visit on this day again. He paused, removing his hat, one bone-thin hand appearing from his overlong sleeve. His pale blue eyes swam over me. Where's the harm, I thought, extending my hand to his. Fiction at the Friary and on Campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.